Welcome to Bad Associations. I'm your host, Brian, and today I'm speaking with Lyndon. Lyndon was born in Australia to a pioneer couple who sacrificed so much for the organization that it plunged their family into poverty. We talk about what it was like growing up in that environment, what happened when he told his parents he was leaving the organization, the steep learning curve the world threw him when he was young, and how growing up in that environment drove him to succeed financially. We also talk about realizing how traumatized one can be without realizing it until later in life. I hope you enjoy the interview. Here's Lyndon. Can you tell me about the first time that you questioned, that you doubted the religion? The first time I would have started to question um, the organization and essentially what um, my parents were, were um, represented was, I would say, around 11 to 12 years of age when um, I could just see the, the level of poverty that we were in as a result of my parents' decision to um, essentially be full-time pioneers and that decision to work one day a week um, or essentially going to school with very minimal food um, and the financial stress of our household was uh, manifested quite clearly. So um, to me, it didn't make a lot of sense that um, it was a conscious decision to to only um, want to work one day a week and put ourselves through that whilst everyone around me seemed to... Um, be able to enjoy the simple pleasures in life and it just didn't seem like things were adding up to me mm. um, given that everything was getting done free of charge so to speak was was what your parents did was that pretty typical of the witnesses around your area or were they were they a, an, an outlier um my parents um my, my dad and my stepmom had a tendency to um go wherever they were told. So we lived in a town for one or two years and then would be sent to wherever the, the need was greater, oh, so okay. to speak. Yeah. Um, it, it, my dad um, and, and stepmom were both uh, full-time pioneers, so um, quite often we would go to small country towns and they would usually be the uh, one of a kind in the congregation, if you like. But um, most pioneers uh, are the same, however... Mm. Um, it's not typical for pioneers to have young children and a young family, I guess, yeah. uh, due to the um, financial constraints. That, oh, naturally, yeah. That they have. Was it that you didn't see the sense in how your parents were applying it, or you just questioned whether or not it, any of it was true? Right up until I left the witnesses when I was 15, I, because that's all I'd never ever owned, I knew, I understood that it was all true, but the pain of practicing what we were told to do was starting to uh, just not sit well with me. Yeah. And by that I mean, um, well, I could see the stress that my father was under with with um, what he was essentially being told to do and even to put petrol in the car um, at, at our cost when we, um, we didn't have food in the house, so to speak, was... It didn't sit right. It didn't seem right, and 
I could tell that we were being taken advantage of. Taken advantage of? You mean like... My, my dad was um, very quick to please um, and he got... Um, you know, would feel good about himself by doing whatever he was told to do from the elders or um, if it meant sticking his neck out to do something out of the ordinary, whether it was missionary work or full-time pioneering and whatever else. Mm. Um, so they thinking that. about it. Yeah, absolutely. He was very quick to climb the ranks, so to speak, even at, um, if that was at our own expense. And I remember many times going away and um, for conventions and whatnot, and uh, we struggled to buy enough food throughout that three or four day period. And we were uh, very quickly scolded when we were told we were still hungry, or when we said we were still hungry. It was quite a um, very traumatic and a, and a very, um, uh, the 15 years that I was raised as a witness, were, there wasn't very many good memories, put it that way. Okay. Were like the elders or anybody else in the congregation, were they were they aware of the extent of this? Um, I think so, but it was just a, like occasionally there would be um, small contributions made from some of the elders toward my parents, which probably fed their belief that, um, you know, God is looking out for them. Um, there'd be, you know, sometimes 20 or $50 put in an envelope under the doormat from the, uh, from the congregation as a thank you for their efforts. Yeah. Um, yeah, I saw it for what it was. I was probably went against the grain at a very young age. I was very sceptical about things, whereas everyone around me seemed to be quite gullible, vulnerable, um, and very sort of punch drunk on the on the whole concept. Um, and that just led from one thing to another. I don't think I was ever... Well, I always knew that deep down I wasn't a witness and that uh, one day when the time time was right and I was able to um, make the move, I probably would. Hmm. But um, I was certainly unaware and underestimated the impact um, that leaving would have post-JW life. And um, 25 years later, I, I probably still live with a lot of that, that um, post, post-childhood trauma, if you like. Yeah. Um, and even the cognitive behaviour and the decisions I make and, and how I make them very much go back to that sort of that fear, fear-based, um, well, I'm not sure what you call it, but... Um, oh, I know. You are far from the only one, I assure you. <laughs> Did your parents convert as adults or were they raised as well? Did you have any, any contact no, with my parents? My parents, originally my parents were... Um, only 16 and 18, I think, when they had me. Okay. Um, my, they were very much, uh, I think at that time they were living in a caravan and quite vulnerable to say the least. I think oh, they wow. got a knock on the door and um, given the state that they were in, um, sort of desperate, uh, hopeful for something better in life, um, they got the knock on the door. I think I was... 18 months old and then um, the, the rest was history so hmm. uh, my, I, I don't have a memory of being uh, a non-witness but right. you know, I think they got baptised shortly after that and um, the rest was history Yeah, the impact it had on our family was quite significant quite quickly 
Um, obviously, my grandparents questioned um, my father's decision to to immerse himself in a in a faith so quickly and as dramatically as he did. Oh, sure. Um, because he was told from daughters uh, and those who he was studying with that um, you know that was all sort of prophesied, so to speak, as being um, testing his faith and, and whatnot. He he actually blocked them out of our lives altogether. He just said no more contact with the grandparents. And that that um, certainly hurt me quite a bit because I, I do remember um, a number of the contact attempts that my grandfather had made that um, I think once he even arrived at our house and my father called the police to have him uh, taken away. No way. Wow. Um, because he was essentially trying to help my father. But, um, oh, wow. He, my father was was uh, very much drunk on the um, the beliefs. So um, I would say so. Wow. Yeah, obviously it, it would have hurt my grandparents to see that you know their only son and his children were no longer available to them. Forget about the Christmas and everything from that perspective, but more so the ability to enjoy having a family and uh, grandchildren and whatnot was all removed from them. That caused a lot of pain. But um, things all came to a head for me when I was 14. And um, I had been homeschooled from about year seven onward. My parents took me out of high school because they deemed, um, for obvious reasons, that um, the worldly associations in high school were detrimental to me. So I was put in a room for a couple of years to to um, undertake a pathetic excuse for an education for the next two years, which I'll, uh, I resented my parents for for a number of years because it instantly removed any any academic pursuits I may have wanted to achieve. Yeah. Um, uh, I ended up applying for a, tra- a retail traineeship, which isn't exactly anything exciting but for me it was an opportunity to to try and get a career and I very much recognised money was a a way out of the poverty trap Mm -hmm. Um, so I accepted that and and when I was 15 um, uh, I remember telling my father that I no longer wanted to be a witness Uh, I was still living at home and um, almost instantly Everything stopped in terms of uh, the transport to work. Uh, I was basically told, well, if you want to um, remain in this house, you will, um, if you don't want to be a witness, you can stay in your room once you've left work. And that, that's exactly what I did. Um, they tried to pour the heat on. They had elders and whatnot come around and continue to um, sort of bully bully me and um, while they had the opportunity and then um, after about three months of trying everything they could to punish me as best as they could, they advised there was no longer room for me in the house hmm. and that was the exact words my father used essentially because I was a non-believer and I was in no way a rebellious child, I simply had a, a full-time traineeship that I wanted to um, commit to and, and that was it so I was... Um, you were how, the door at 15. You were how old at the time? At 15, I was. Is that legal for parents to do that where you're from? 
Um, I actually don't know. I I know it's unethical, but I don't know if it's illegal. Yeah. Well, I know. Um, I, I I'm pretty but, sure here in the the states, it's. I think if the child is under a certain age, you just you you can't do that. But I don't know the exact law, and it might depend on. It might go from state to state, like it is here. But uh, that's kind of yeah. Yeah, I've never really thought of it from a legal perspective. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, you're 15. What are you gonna? <laughs> what do you? What do you know about it, right? At that point. Yeah, the the financial situation we were in was so dire that um, prior to me leaving home, my father asked if he could borrow three thousand dollars to buy a family car. Prior to me leaving, um, I was quite a uh, strict saver because I I saw every dollar as a um, step closer to my meal ticket to get out of there. Yeah. Um, and that, that I thought was quite embarrassing that um, a father who consciously made the decision to dedicate most of their time free of charge to uh, door knock and yeah. commit to the, the truth, so to speak, um, would be able to ask their son to, to borrow money to, um, to buy the car. Um, wow! Just it's quite ridiculous. I yeah. So anyway, um, what happened from then was I uh, probably for the next seven days I I slept in the the lunch room at work. Um, it was just a supermarket essentially, but I it, lots of people would have their head on the table pretending they were lunch having lunch, and um, that's exactly what I did until I was able to find something, and then. Um, I remember putting a note on the notice board at work, look, saying I was looking for a um, a room to rent. Um, I think I was earning one hundred and thirty eight dollars a week at the time, and um, I ended up finding a place for eighty dollars a week. Oh, nice! <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I had uh, fifty eight dollars left to play with. Yeah. Um. So, but even as painful as that was, I had. I very much felt liberated. Um, my father's goal was to see me leave and and fail and come back and say, um, I shouldn't have left. And um, Come back with your absolutely... tail between your legs, be the prodigal son, that kind of thing. Yeah, he absolutely, um, a 15-year-old, Going out into the um, to the big world that you've been shielded from for so many years. Oh yeah, he absolutely thought that um, that was the only outcome. Yeah, um, and that was the expectation, um, and they rolled the dice on that, thinking that it would happen. Yep. But that absolutely drove me um, beyond imagination to make sure that I didn't fail. Hmm. I. I went through some of the most horrific times after that in terms of um, anxiety, panic attacks, because at this stage I'd still very much thought that the fundamental teachings were still true um, and that any day I was going to die in Armageddon. It it was quite horrific, but the pain of living that life outweighed 
Sure. The um, I was living day to day with yeah. with the expectation that every day could have been your last. So that affected the decisions you made, how you made them. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always in a rush to get things done because of this expectation of um, the, being killed <laughs> um, right. because I'd, I'd left. Um, you wake up every day thinking, "Oh, is this when the meteors are going to come?" and does God have a special yeah. fireball just for me? Yeah, and I think that given that how they prophesied the end of the world or the end of the last days was going to um, essentially end was that, um, you know, when world leaders would announce peace and security and, and whatnot. Right. Um, I was always told that that would be done by the news of the night time and once you heard that the, um, uh, forgive my uh, recollection of it, but... Um, the king of the north, king of the south, whatever it is, and that that would be essentially on the news. So I, I would, growing up, would literally sit in the room of a night time around six o'clock when the news would come on, just bracing to to hear, um, and that was sort of pumped into me that you um, you know you'd stand by every night to hear whether it, it's coming, and I, I knew that I was not uh, aligned with that. With their fights on you, that um, yeah, if I remember, it came, I was dead. I remember when I was younger, um, I was just a kid, and our president at the time, I think it was George H.W. Bush, um, yeah. he said peace and security during a speech or something, and my, I, I remember my father just jumping up on the couch declaring that the time of the end is at hand and, you know, it's starting, yeah. it's starting, it's starting, and, you know, that was... 30 years ago now so clearly that wasn't it but it's, yeah. it's interesting you know we're on different sides of the world yet you know we've had that same that same fear of the end of the world that gripped us a lot yeah, of us. 100%. Well, I um so that back with me for a very long time and many years later after I was able to understand that that wasn't necessarily the case the subconscious mind and my nervous system became so programmed to be in a state of fear at that time every night. Sure. Um, but it never went away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could never understand why I was at this overwhelming sense of fear over me 20 years later. And I was always so uneasy. Um, and it probably is only really in the last few years that I'll be able to become a bit more in touch with dotting the lines between um, the cause of, of those thoughts um, and the behavioural traits that I probably have later on in life. Right. Um, so anyway, I left um, left home and um, I became quite close to my grandparents after leaving. Oh, good. Um, and my grandfather worked extensively with some people in, in Brooklyn I think um, it was called an organisation called Comments from the Friends. Have you ever heard of that? Comments, Comments from, from the Friends. That was a, um, I have not heard of that. Yeah, that, at the time, I don't know if they're still around these days, but they were um, ex-Jehovah's Witnesses who, essentially, for the sake of a better term, ran detox courses, if you like, to um, put people's minds at ease who had left and. Huh basically undo a lot of the um, 
they, they pull it apart, some of the teachings, so that you realise that it's not real. Interesting. Um, and without that, um, I don't think I'd be here, to be, to be honest. That absolutely helped me understand exactly what it was. Um, you know, a lot of the false prophecies that um, had come and gone and... and you can actually pick apart a lot of um, what they taught and I started to see it for what it was. Mm -hmm. um, and without my grandfather helping with that, um, um, I don't uh, don't believe I'd be here today. Yeah. Um, so that, that certainly helped, but again, the underlying mental toll it took on me later on in life, not long after that, I... I had, um, I think it was 18, I ended up going into the army, which probably just compounded um, my stress levels, but I, I needed a sense of belonging, and I felt, I felt part of something doing that. Um, when I eventually got out of the army, I think the, the three or four years that I'd been out of the witnesses had um, come to a head, and oh, i come out in a very bad way mentally, I think from about 19 or 20 years of age, I was on some, some pretty heavy medication just to um, allow me to function. I was mm -hmm. having shot and panic attacks at work to the point where I was unable to function. I, I was so consumed with fear and anxiety and, and it was misplaced. I didn't know what it meant, but I knew that it was sort of built in from, um, from childhood. Yeah. And I probably lost my way a little bit in my early 20s. I, I, well, I always worked. Um, but um, to, to get that acceptance, I probably did things that I probably shouldn't have with, with alcohol and drugs. Probably did everything that I was told not to do growing up. Sure. Probably more so because I knew I could. Yeah. And um, uh, my. Maybe in my early to mid twenties, I sort of realised that I needed to um, to sort myself out, um, and I, I turned my every effort into uh, career and academic pursuits, and, and trying to get some qualifications and and um, some form of education that I was deprived from uh, growing up. Um, so I, I did as many diplomas or postgraduate. Um, qualifications as I could and I essentially became a workaholic and that's how I expressed myself and um, used all of that nervous energy mm -hmm. but um, that was probably as good that's probably a better thing to turn to than other things however I understood that was still only a band-aid solution to some of the the trauma that was still there on there deep down mm -hmm. um, and I'd learned to just emotionally disconnect from it after a while with any sense of you know missing parents or missing family and naturally being that I'd left on was um, communication with me stopped I never really had anything to do with any family again wow um, so you learn to just to, to emotionally cut ties it doesn't mean you don't feel pain from that sense of loss but well, I, I became numb and I think I would, I would say I've been numb for most of my life and it probably wasn't until 
uh, I ended up having my own children that the uh, the silent, I don't know what you call it, um, the trauma, if you like, probably revisited me later in life with everything that um, I probably went through. You met somebody, you had children. Yeah, I met somebody. Um, I moved from um, Newcastle in, in Australia to Perth, other side of the country, mm. um, originally for work. Ended up meeting someone who had um, got a beautiful family, four years old and six-year-old, two two daughters. Um, oh, nice. And that's your, that's your reason for um, everything you do, I guess. Yeah. But as much as they bring you joy and you you see them smile and whatnot, it's a painful reminder of everything you didn't have. Um, so it's sure. a bittersweet experience. Yeah. Um, I have been as long as I've known on medication since I left the witnesses purely to, um, to keep me level. Most people who see me throughout the day would think that I am perfectly normal on I um, put on a facade of being a, a businessman who um, is a force of nature, but um, <laughs> when the, the suit and tie comes off, I'm very much a vulnerable um, person after hours. But um, yeah. to this day, um, and probably the worst of it has probably manifested itself in the last few years, and that is a, a, a very much a complex PTSD that. Um, has probably affected me more in the last couple of years than it did when I actually made a move to um, to leave the witnesses and, and everything at the time uh, because you, I never dealt with those feelings. I just put them to one side and learned sure. to numb that pain. Well, I mean, that's what we're um, taught. That's what we're taught as witnesses to put aside mm-hmm. doubts, put aside, you know, it's they call it wait on, wait on Jehovah. You know, just wait, wait, you know, put aside your doubts, put aside any kind of difficulties you're having right now. And they, they teach, I mean, they, they teach you that you're, you are always last. So you never learn to prioritize yourself because prioritizing yourself, even for a short, short period of time is, is just wrong to them. And, you know, that's the harm. I mean, you're talking. You talk about your father being, you know, somebody who just always did what he was told and, and was kind of a doormat. And that's, you know, that's the personality they cultivate. And yeah, that and, really and does not serve people very well um, in life mm-hmm. and generally. Yeah, so from a, from a mental um, health perspective, it's on paper everything in my life now would seem – uh, would seem perfect, um, and I, I am somewhat proud of the fact that I've been able to defy the odds based on the upbringing and whatnot. Oh, um, absolutely! We're beautiful family. I have a business, beautiful family. I've been smart with money. I've done everything that is textbook the right way to do it. Um, but I, I struggle on a daily basis. It, and that that abandonment, essentially, yeah. that I was um, exposed to as a child, has very much read its head later in life when it's your turn to have children and you 
it's debilitating. It sounds like you hold yourself to a very high standard. Yeah, and, and maybe it's that standard of, of um, attainment and staying there that drives me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never really been kind to myself or I, I certainly struggled to make friends and relationships in life. Oh. Um, later on in life and would sometimes go to great lengths to sabotage myself um, from any of those relationships developing based on this um, history repeating itself and this mm-hmm. trauma, which I've seen, since learned a bit more about later on in life. Yeah. Um, so one ends up one ends up punishing themselves um, quite a fair bit unintentionally, I believe, yeah. um, depending on the level of the abandonment, whether it's a husband or wife, um, father, child, whatever that they end up losing once they've left the witnesses. Have you sought any uh, professional counselling or therapy or anything? Uh, yes, yeah, I certainly have. Um, well, for quite a while, uh, probably haven't really taken it seriously until the last um, five or so years. Uh, up until then, I've very much liked to uh, think I was invincible. But sure, um, since since the kids have come along, I've I've probably been um, emotionally. I've, I've had to reacquaint what was previously emotionally unavailable to emotionally available now, which meant that um, I became vulnerable. And um, yeah. I've had a lot of, a lot of counselling. I found also too, from a, from a suicide perspective, when someone leaves the witnesses and they've had this expectation of this amazing place that we're going to go to, when that Santa Claus, so to speak, is not real anymore in you. Oh, yeah. It can be a bit deflating, um, knowing there's nothing else. Yeah, um, I've found it's you can become quite depressed that later on in life. Uh, in 2018, I, I I tried to end my life on the uh, on the highway, um, and that was probably the the um, I would say yeah, 20 or so years finally coming to a head, and then. It, probably exposed a lot of things that I had tried to ignore for a long time. Yeah. Um, since took took therapy counselling, um, the whole a lot more serious. But I'm better for all that now. Um, I'm on the right track. I function, but it, it's not something that goes goes away. No. Um, no, it's not. And there's, I would say. Although I'm ninety five percent healed, um, when there's events in the world happen, like the Israel thing, whatever you want to call it, you, oh, right. there's always that slight tap on your shoulder about what if, um, yeah, you know what if, and, and all of a sudden that, um, you know, this is Armageddon coming, and right. you start questioning yourself again. I found it's really helpful to just kind of study history and especially I'm, I'm sure when you were t- when you were speaking with that uh, comments from the friends group they probably covered a lot of this too but you know I one of my things is that I always, everybody thinks that they're living in a special time and when the witnesses were founded a hundred and hundred odd years ago 150 years ago or so 
they thought they were living in a special time. And one of Charles Taze Russell's first um, go first stabs at prophecy, you know, he had to, he said the the end times happened and started in 1799 when Napoleon took the throne. So, you know, that seems ridiculous to us, but for, from the perspective of somebody who living back then where they don't see World War II happening, they don't, or World War One and Two yeah. happening, they don't see everything else happening in front of that. It's kind of like, you know, we can laugh at their perspective now, but it was, and, and likewise, you know, our perspective now, we, we don't see what's in the future. You know, there was a lot of talk, you know, COVID that was... A really big one i'm sure that stirred up lots of speculation among the witnesses and then the ukraine thing and now the israeli thing and it's i'm not like a historian or anything i'm not a professional i'm not educated in history i just kind of uh, it, i kind of read it for entertainment you know and i you know i feel like there's always stuff like that happening in the world there's always stuff like that happening and when they talk about uh, I, mean, I talk about it in my episode too. Like when I first started having doubts, it's when we were reading the Daniel's prophecy book, which I'm, you may have left before that came out, but they had a whole list of historical rulers who were Kings of the North and Kings of the South. And I'm just like, how do you guys know that? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's ridiculous, but I know, you know, when things come up, you're talking about, you know, that little feeling in the back of your head and, you know, there's a difference between knowing something and feeling something. So may, you might know that, hey, this is ridiculous and hey, this is obviously not true, but it's, you don't feel that way all the time. Am I right? Yeah, deep down, I know it's not, not true. And I, um, I'm very um, rational. And I, I sort of, sometimes if I get a bit lost in, in that fear pattern again, I sort of think about it pragmatically yeah. and remember what I'd been told since I've left. Right. Um, and the, the rational Lyndon sees the organization as, as it is. And that is that it's, um, it's a, it's a money-making yeah. <laughs> organization. It's, um, I see it what it is as a, but you're fighting, you're fighting things that were instilled in you in childhood that were written into that yeah. deep emotional place in your brain. That this is very diff that is very difficult to yeah. interact. My grandfather was who wasn't a witness, but basically dedicated his life to to helping me clear my head so that I wouldn't um, do anything stupid. <laughs> really pumped into me a lot of the the things that. Jehovah's Witnesses went through in 1975, or sure. um, I think another um, prophecy from the, the governing body, you might correct me from running astray, but those, uh, the generation in 1914. Right, right. Um, I think they said something uh, about, they, they kind of cold prophesied the year 2000 because... One yeah. or more of the uh, a publication said before the twentieth century ends or something like that. So, um, and, and then I just I think look, I remember for a fact that when I was in in nineteen eighty nine, um, I was meant to start school 
in, in I think over here we call it kindergarten or year one. Okay. Um, my parents were so convinced that the the end of the world was coming that year that they purposely withheld me from going to school that year because oh it wasn't goodness. worth it given that they were convinced the end of the world was coming that year. Wow. So I ended up starting kindergarten at seven years of age, wow. two years ahead of everybody else. Oh, um, my goodness. And I'm and, sure, I'm sure and, you're at 7 o'clock, you, 70 years old. You definitely don't relate to the five-year-olds five year there. No, well, it ended up causing all kinds of um, dysfunction in my schooling. Because when I was in primary school, I think I went from year three, and the teacher said, look, this, this kid is too advanced to be in his class. I ended up going from year three to year five mm -hmm. just so that I could um, – they could keep my attention for six hours a day because I was just not sure. Probably and it good, all stemmed back to it. Probably a good call there. Yeah, but it all stemmed back to a, a decision based on what they had been told um, about Armageddon coming that year. Um, wow. And I think back to, to that now and often wonder, that was 30... Two years ago. Yeah. That was um, right around the time where my dad jumped up on the couch, by the way. So I wonder if there's yeah. something going on there. Mm. And it, it's when I think about that or, you know, the, the millions that um, walked away from their houses, their jobs and everything in 75 for it to come and go. And then um, they lost a large percentage of people. Um that it puts things back in a perspective that it's there's no monster in the in the uh, outside the window, um, and you calm down a bit. And you sort of got to rationalise the situation a bit, and, um, but it, it doesn't ever go away. And no. a lot of it, as you as you get older, becomes misplaced. Fear and anxiety. You, you might understand it's not true, but that that um, subconscious or cognitive uh, um, behaviour yeah. struggles to go away. I've found. Oh, and I have as well. I, I I've dealt with a lot of the same or or similar mental issues too. You know, the fear and the misplaced, especially the misplaced fear, anger, anxiety, that kind of thing. And um, it takes. A lot of work it takes so much work to overcome it and I personally have come to peace with the fact that it's probably never totally going to go away and it's some and it's baggage that I'm probably going to have to carry for the rest of my life and I can I can do whatever I can to minimize it and manage it but I really don't see myself ever totally getting rid of it I don't know if that's true for you, but uh, that's, mm. that's the case for me. One of the other just um, glancing thoughts that's come through my mind was uh, quite often I think of, um, uh, I'm not sure whether you, you probably would have heard in, in 2000, and, um, I think it was 2016, here in Australia, they had the Royal Australian um, Commission. I was meaning to ask and, about that. Thank you for getting to it. Yeah, I don't know why, I just I probably digressed, sorry. Um, no, no, it's fine. But I wasn't um, 
I don't know if it got publicised much in the US or in England or wherever, but it was quite big here in Australia at the time. Yeah. I think um, here among ex-witnesses, it's very well known, but mm. among the general public, it's not. So in Australia, it's probably well known amongst the public is what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. The, the numbers were staggering from that. Um, whilst I wasn't um, a, a victim of child sex abuse, what I was was a, a victim of child uh, domestic violence from from my stepfather who was a witness. Um, and he was an animal. And I, I recall very vividly some of the um when my parents ended up getting divorced when I was a little bit older um and I think mum got a scholarship for that but she within 18 months was back reinstated um my stepfather was was a very violent man and um would quite aggressively uh, beat up our mother in front of us when we would go and visit her every second weekend. Mm. But there were incidents in, in the actual congregation a couple of times where he um, would would swing me from one chair to another um, oh quite violently. Um, there were times at home where we were, he would throw bottles at us, we were sort of whipped with um, wet towels that were open open hand hit to the head. Um Good Lord. he was he was a fully fledged member. Um and I remember one incident in the congregation once from the back of the hall. Um and he, he threatened me that if I if I didn't sing, because um, I wasn't singing at the time that he would um he would hurt me. Wow. And I don't know what happened but I I think I was around eight years of age and I snapped. And I just walked out, hmm. and he came running for me. Um, and I remember screaming in the foyer of the congregation, wow. um, "Don't let him hit me!" And I remember screaming that out quite loud. And one of the elders, very obviously, got a lot of attention. One of the elders um, quickly came out and took me to the, the back room to talk about it. But it, it, it happened repeatedly over and over again for quite a while. Wow. Um, it never actually stopped until I hit back when I was about 13. Oh. Um, but nothing was ever reported. Nothing was ever done about it in terms of domestic violence orders or um, it, it was all kept in with the elders to uh, manage in the house. Of course. Um, and that was the extent it ever went. And it was... It was horrific, um, yeah. and that had a lot to do with, I believe, a lot of um, you know anger management issues growing up with misplaced, um, sure. you know, anger and whatnot. And it used to, even when my father found out, nothing happened ever, um, and I just I couldn't understand why. Given how you know, the Bible talks about the uh, um, everything it does talk about, how that would be allowed to continue and not dealt with, right. um, I couldn't ever get my head around it. Um, and to this day, I 
by actively um, say that if I saw that same person again, I, it, 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 he'd be dead and I'd be in a cell wow. because that's the, the impact that had on me. Are your, um, but, is your mom and stepdad still alive? Yeah, they are. They, um, they are still alive, um, but I, I probably stopped seeing them much younger than I did when I left um, mm. at my father's house because we didn't. Um, my father had had custody of us. Oh, okay. So um, I think the last time I visited my mother um, would have been was thirteen or fourteen. Sometimes when grandkids come along the attitude of the of the parents tends to change quite a bit and they start to see your children as a target yeah. for indoctrination um and they try to sometimes they try to bypass you to get to them to get them to be witnesses yeah it's interesting you say that because uh, they've never met my children and irrespective of whatever happens now um I think they forfeited the right to to be grandparents when they neglected the responsibility of being a parent, in my opinion. Yeah, I, um, I agree with that opinion. However, um, it's interesting you say that because it, it would be probably about 12 months ago in September that after tw oh, 20 years perhaps, I think it is, give or take, um, since I had any any contact or meaningful contact with my father, I had a random email uh, from him 12 months ago. Hmm. And my children would have been uh, three three years of age, five years of age at that stage. And the, the email, the contents of that email was only a couple sentences long, but it basically, it, it, it read... We're wondering if after um, the last 20 years, whether you've had a chance to change your outlook on life and whether you've... Um, it was a very condescending, uh, bordering passive-aggressive um, way of saying, have you woken up to yourself yet? Um, and, and they brought up and leveraged the children as it would be a shame if the if your children were never able to meet their grandparents um, due to your oh, um, selfish. Um, I can't remember the words. I don't have the letter in front of me. But uh, yeah, it, I, I'm. Yeah, it, it, like it's your fault. It <laughs> trying to it trying to turn the situation around to make out that I'm the selfish one who has pers pursued. Um, uh, you know, selfish ambitions in life and have you had a chance to change your outlook on life? I mean, uh, have, you, have you finished being lost in the world? Um, and it's a shame that your children are going to suffer. Yeah. Do they, and, do they know anything about you at this point? Do they know, you know... No, not really. <laughs> so that was a catalyst. So they're just assuming... For, so he was just assuming that you, your life is falling apart and, and everything is... I think he had found it indirectly through my grandmother, um, you know, the general gist that I had kids 
um, oh, okay. and what I was doing, but he didn't certainly know the details, certainly not for me. And I certainly suspect that um, there's a bit of Facebook stalking and, and whatnot from um, my brother and sister that's fed back to him. Um, oh, for sure. Anyway, yeah, he, he certainly doesn't know the details, and I had buried the the relationship and I and it still is for that matter but when I received that it, it was it was almost offensive oh yeah um, the the manner in which it was uh, written that I saw this as um, I, I never really when I left home had the chance to give my final say on the whole thing mm-hmm. I I left under duress um, I had a mountain bike and that was how I left home Wow! Um, and that was oh, I never had a chance to give my final uh, uppercut to the whole situation so 20 years later when I'm poked I thought this has been that's unsolicited so my response, given that it's now solicited, is going to uh, – I drafted it for two weeks and I made sure it hit the spot uh, and I didn't miss. Um, I basically let them know everything that I went through as a child and how it affected me, um, what I've had to endure since leaving um, but I've become a better person for it financially, academically, with my own family. And it would any parent who read that letter, who had half a heart, would have killed themselves because it, I, I didn't miss. Yeah. Um, and the, the sad part about it was anyone who got that, you would think would say, I'm so sorry to hear that. You know that happened to you. Yeah. The only response I got in return to that fairly lengthy uh, response to my father was he returned a, a one-line email that said, "Sounds like you've been wanting to get it off your chest for a long time. All the best." <laughs> and and that that's was all. that's all. You know, that that's that was it. And I had I had just sent him three pages of very factual and it was clear concise and in the past I didn't really want to tell him how much it affected me but I wanted him to understand how much it had caused but that I had overcome it and I had done something with my life and that I was able to have a life despite them writing me off and, and basically expecting that I would come home with my tail between my legs and I was so determined to to prove to him that that was not going to happen Hmm. Um, and he would never admit it that he was um, that I won that. But uh, I know in my heart of hearts what I've done has defied odds with given the chances I had. And I yeah. I take pride in knowing that um, it would bug him. Um, but the the heartless email that originally came to me about have you changed your outlook twenty years later? Yeah. Fancy saying that. To your child, your firstborn child, 
no contact after 20 years and the only contact you have is a um, couple sentences questioning whether they're working up to themselves. And then when they finally have their say, you um, you don't acknowledge anything they've said, you just finish it by saying, um, sounds like you wanted to get it off your chest for a long time uh, and then you dismiss it. Yeah. That's... That, that to me just reinforces uh, the level of brainwashing that someone must have that they they see such little regard for their relationship with their children yeah. that it's, un, it's, un, it's not comprehensible. Yeah. I read something recently where it said the organization creates narcissists. And what you're describing, your interactions, it sounds like you're dealing with a narcissist where everything's always your fault. It's never their fault. And it's not necessarily natural to that person, but it's training that they've been trained to be that way because there are so yeah. many interactions like that. I wish I could say that your interaction with your father was a rare one, but it's not. Yeah. But, and it's, un, it's very, it's unfortunate that, you know, they talk about natural affection and how in the end they won't have natural, you know, people won't have natural affection. Well, it's like they're the ones without natural affection. The more you dwell on it, the more it can frustrate you. So you have to just sometimes let it go and yep. forget about it. Um, it's it's like trying to reason with a drug addict. Yeah, you can't. You can't. No. Um, you just can't. Um, because the minute the, the conversation becomes too um, questionable and you're seen to be someone who is questioning the faith or making them think twice about things, the conversation ends in a spot right there. Right. And it's um, and then the other prophecy about you becoming um, Satan's um, spokesman um, there's another prophecy that's come true. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's anyway. a, yeah. It took, it took me personally a long time to realize that there, there is no winning in a conversation with them. It's you are wasting your time to talk to them and try to convince them of anything other than what they think. I mean, obviously it sounded like it was very therapeutic for you to write that email. And I I'd probably say that email was probably more for you and your own well-being to get those things off of your chest. than, you know, obviously it was going to fall on deaf ears with your father and that's unfortunate, yeah. but part of me wondered whether it, um, it was going to be read or not. Yeah. Um, it's quite often, and he may not have read it. He may have just seen all the text and just said, "Wow, you have a lot to say," and not read it too. Possibly, well, I personally think it was read, um, and I think as long as it it was, I think um, look, I, I, yeah, I'm not sure, but it was a liberating exercise for me because I was able to, yeah, I was poked, and I was able to be given the opportunity to set the record straight. Um, say what I thought and try and really bring it back to what kind of parent does that um, but I didn't let it stop me and this is what I've been able to achieve 
yeah. um, despite everything that I had to um, endure. And I was very specific about things like going to school with one Mandarin for the day because that's what you could afford to give me because you were too busy um, fulfilling the request of achieving nine hours a month witnessing. Yeah. Um, then, and things of the like. So, but I was specific because that's, you know, it might be a real, real childhood trauma. But sure. uh, being to your question about the kids, that email was a typical, the first one about um, bring, leveraging the children. Oh, yeah. Um, I thought was particularly poor um, and pissed me off. Because my children will never know that um, they just know that mum has parents, mm -hmm. um, but dad doesn't have parents. <laughs> um, and when they get older, they'll understand the concept of having a chat with them, but for now, they just. Right. They don't know any different. They know they what only they, have one. They know what they need to know for what their ages are currently. Yeah. Um, I'm not about to start explaining to them um, you know, the reasons behind it. But again, that's, there's so many aspects of it that you forget about and, and that's just another one where you're trying to explain to a, a four-year-old and six-year-old um, why, why dad doesn't have parents and why they don't have other grandparents. Dad, my friends at school have two nannies and pops. How can we only have one? Yeah. Um, is yet again just another, another part of the fallout of the whole situation. Right. And it, I'm sure it hurts you to tell them even what the situation is without explaining it. I mean, it's it's painful. Yeah. The eldest one asks lots of questions, and if you, one day you'll tell her the truth, and she'll, uh, she'll only start worrying about um, would something like that happen to her because that she's that kind of child. Yeah. I mean, all you can do is just reassure them. It's like, I am not my parents. I am not raising you the way I was raised. So you went to public school for a lot of it. I know you were taken out and homeschooled for the last few years of of your schooling. Um, but did you have a? How did you get on with the children at the other children at public school? Did you find it easy to make friends? Um, no, no, not not really. And it wasn't so much because I was to have goodness. Um, it was more so the fact that I was in a different school every year. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, of course. So we moved from town to town. Um, and the inability to make meaningful friendships or relationships was almost impossible. Uh, and any time that you did, um, it was quickly pulled apart because you, it was up and going. Right. And back then, that was, that was very much the relationship over because there was no uh, hmm. Facebook, text, chat, phone, whatever you want to call it. That probably extended um, to the congregations as well. I'm sure if I'm sure you're moving congregations yeah. a lot too. In your in your sixth the final year before you do go to high school, I think most children are about twelve years of age. Um, boys are probably starting to the adolescence. Mm -hmm. um, I started to get into a lot of violence at school. Um, and like I was very much the odd one out. Um, I was always new, so I would um, 
a lot of that frustration and anger from being a child had sort of started to surface where I would um, become a different person and have these out-of-body experiences. If I was um, someone threw a ball at me or called me something, I would just snap. Hmm. And... Um, like dissociate? <laughs> and that's... Um, um, but beyond year seven, I don't... It was homeschooled. I do remember lots of what people seeing me after... Um, I was taken out of homeschool and I was probably called more things in that small town after I became homeschooled when I saw them after hours um, because they knew the reasons why. Yeah. Um, That's right. When, um, I think when we moved again, though, there were two friends I made in the, um, in the congregation that were tw- twins. They were sisters. Um, the same age as me, but they were uh, identical twins. I became quite close friends with them. Okay. Um, they were very much, there was no sexual attraction whatsoever. Okay. Uh, it, we were just became, we became three quite close friends because we all would all make sort of fun of the uh, organisation and we sort of became quite close. <laughs> when we finally moved to another town, um, we just had to keep in contact by pen pals. And I recall um, we'd organised this holiday for me to go back up to the town and spend a week with them. Um, and we all shared a common interest with sports and other things. And one of the elders intercepted the situation, recommended to my father that it not not take place uh, because he questioned the motive of, um, of me going up to spend time with them because they were female. Right. Um, I was 12 years old. <laughs> um, uh, there wasn't anything to it other than they were really the only friends I had, and that sure. that gutted me because um, I didn't have any other friends. Yeah. Um, and you're and, 12, but you're already you're just accused of you know you're you're presumed to have these motivations, and they have no evidence that you would. I, it was. My parents had organised it with their parents, both of Jehovah's Witnesses, but um, it was another way of the elders sort of leaning on my father, um, of which he conformed, and um, it was ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous at the time. I just thought this is fucking great. Um, and that was, it was around that time, 11 to 12 years of age, Mark, that I really started to think this is just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Do you know if they're still witnesses? Um, Interestingly, their names were Kate and Emma for that matter, Um, and I I still talk to Kate on on Facebook occasionally. She's not a witness anymore, Um, and we quite often send each other um, Hmm. funny memes or videos uh, because we... We shared a common story. Um, I think she's now left, and um, she has a female partner. So you can imagine how she would be um, viewed by her family. Of course. Um, and it was a sad story because they were genuinely nice people. Those those young girls, and um, I guess the silver lining is that they uh, 
they made it out and were able to live their own life. All these years later, we sort of stayed in contact. But in terms of um, friendships and whatnot, there was we were never allowed to have anyone over. Obviously, at school, mm. um, I was a natural sort of sports person at school, but you know anything sport related was condemned. Oh, of course. Um, I thought I'd run the corner while I was at school in year six to join the school soccer team. And I figured whatever it was in school hours, it would be okay because my parents wouldn't find out. <laughs> um, until one day we uh, we had a game and the bus didn't get back to five o'clock that evening. And um, I was exposed. Um, and then grounded for a month. <laughs> so, uh, wow. yeah. Anything, friends, sport. Yeah, it was almost impossible. How did um, you, yeah? How did you adjust to being around worldly people when you first left? Like the, you go from not celebrating your birthday or any holidays to being around people who are. It was for me. It was instantaneous. I was like a kid in a candy store. <laughs> I was more excited for Christmas than um. Oh, awesome. that's all I was. The, the first Christmas I had at 16 with my grandparents was a huge occasion. Um, it was as big for them as it was for me because that was the first Christmas they actually had with their grandchild. Oh, of um, oh, I bet that was so exciting for them and for you. Yeah, it was. It was just the whole driving around seeing Christmas lights like we were, I was 10 years younger. Um, but it, I, I jumped straight into it. I, I loved those um, everything, Easter, birthdays, Christmas. And mm. Most of the people around me who understood my background probably made the um, made the event special for that reason. Oh, how nice of um, But I felt that a lot of people sort of empathised with the situation. Yeah. Um, but I certainly struggled at a social level for a while to yeah. To make meaningful connections and stuff with people because I just didn't, um, I wasn't exposed to it, and I think that even carries through to, you know, relationships with the opposite sex, and, and actually trying to find a girlfriend was quite hard, and that I I didn't have a whole conversation with a non JW person. Um, I felt like a freak. Um, because it was just so unnatural. Sure. Yeah, um, I'm not used to it. I mean, it, it's hard and so, it's hard to date in the witnesses because, you know, you talk to if you're if you if you talk to somebody of the opposite sex, it's like the presumption by everybody around you is immediately, you know, sex is brought into the whole thing, and oh, it, it makes incredible. it immediately awkward. <laughs> Oh, I just had no idea. Yeah. Um, I was very green when I left. Very green. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the desire to get accepted by certain people um, meant that I would do all kinds of things. And I, if someone said to me, do this, try that, have this, I became very gullible, naive, probably sure. for the first three or four years. You had no, um, I mean, you had no moral compass. We're not given a moral compass none. As, as witnesses. Absolutely none. We're just told um, we're given a series of moral pronouncements and 
when we leave the witnesses, it's hard to distinguish, you know, which ones of those, which the, which of those pronouncements were reasonable and which ones were not. I mean, we're taught that we're taught that going to see a prostitute is just as wrong as having a piece of birthday cake. Well, I'm eating birthday cake now, so it must not be wrong to do all these other things. And it's very easy to, yeah. And you kind of have to, you have to learn to create your own moral compass after you leave because they, they give you no guidance and they say like biblical principles or whatever, but it's like a lot of those principles apply, don't even apply in the modern world anymore. They don't cover a lot of situations in the modern world. So you're just kind of left on your own to figure it all out. Sometimes when I start thinking about it, I just, it almost defies science that I'm still here. Um, <laughs> I, but the whole drinking thing was sort of very much forbidden. So the whole moral compass about, do you have one drink or do you have 10? Right. Um, when I first left, if you're an 18 year old, who's who had the exposure of a boy scout um and knew nothing about nothing mm-hmm. um i remember the first night that i was i went to a party to to drink um i had no idea whether and normally most kids would have friends or family that you know just only have a couple or, um well, i went i just got a six pack of um I think they're called UDLs, vodka drinks. Um, and I just thought you drank a like can of Coke. Um, little, by this stage, I was already on um, medication for my anxiety attack. So two and a half hours later, I'm waking up in an ambulance because I felt like I was tranquilized. Oh, wow. Um, that kind of thing. Like I had, I was so green and. Uh, you know, I I overdosed on things because I had no idea what what um, was right and wrong and um, what was considered normal in the outside world. Yeah. Um, and my friends told me it was cheating. Yeah, all you have to know is what the watchtowers told you about how, what the outside world is like. That's the only information you have to go on. And a lot of mm-hmm. that information is wrong, but you have no idea which is wrong and which is not. Yeah, I, I basically learned through trial and error um, and hope that somehow I would uh, find my own way. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those instances in my early years were so vivid that I never, I've, I've literally never drank since I was 21. Hmm. Um, I'm 39 years of age now because those events scarred me so much Yeah, that I... I was told it was okay to um, take a pill and um, you wouldn't need to drink as much alcohol and the, the night would be a lot cheaper for you. Um, and every single one of my friends did it, so I thought it was okay. Yeah. Um, with that, and then they said, if you don't feel anything after an hour, take another one. Um, and then you you wake up unconscious. Um, again, it's just a lack of exposure and... Again, they, they teach you these things in, in high school, and when you don't have any of that, you're um, yeah, no health class, no, no education for no. about any of that kind of thing. And it's no. you're, and I mean, it was forbidden to me. you say, I mean, you said that you're lucky to be here. It definitely sounds, you know, after episodes like that, you're absolutely, I mean, 
that's not a good way to learn those. It's good that you learn those lessons, but it's definitely not a good way to learn them. I'm fortunate enough to have um, many times when I took risks, um, I'm lucky that they rolled in my favour. Yeah. Um, I went through a phase of, of um, I think I got a criminal record when I was in my early 20s for assault because I, I learned to things and take things in my own hands if someone uh, did something to you, you did back. And um, again, all those things sort of had to be done for me to find my way about, oh, it's, you can't do that. Oh. Right. Um, because you're not the, the Jehovah's Witness law is, is above the law. Um, <laughs> so you, you become disconnected with what to do. Of course. Um, and what not to do. Do you have any advice for somebody who's leaving or thinking of leaving? Um, it's a good question. Um, the first thing I would say to somebody is, is it is absolutely critical for them to be, for the sake of a better term, detoxed from the the fear and a lot of the beliefs that go along with death and dying and your sins and your bad and um, a lot of the anxiety that goes along with that, I think, remains with people for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite important that that is uh, addressed sooner rather than later um, because if it's not, I, I think that 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 causes a lot of emotional heartache um, later on in life. Yeah. Um, there's a number of things out there that you can do to, to address those, um, but without going into detail, that, that has to be, in my opinion, the first thing that you, you give focus to to make sure that you are um, thinking rationally because a lot, of, a lot of people go back to the witnesses because of that. Oh, that fear—it's um, a driving factor. Yeah, and then they go back um, with stories of how horrible the world really is, and the organization's absolutely and self-fulfilling right. prophecy. Yeah. Um, so, for, for their own sanity, it is critical that you you clear your head, um, you learn things and see things for what they are, um, before you can do anything else. Um, because depending on the level of or the severity of um, you know, indoctrination and how strict the parents were or weren't or whatnot, um, it, it can um, it, it can overpower you for a long time. Some people who aren't as well, I've spoken to some people who who said, "Oh, yeah, I was just growing up, and their story is nothing like mine." So they, they're not sort of as brainwashed perhaps as I was growing up. Um, and that's great because they're not as affected. But um, there's equally as many sad stories about people taking their own lives or um, living as a hermit crab for the rest of their life mm-hmm. because they can't face the real world. Or... Right. But my advice to that is to address those those teachings that make you uh, have sleepless nights, if you like, 
um, with urgency. Yeah. Um, sometimes, and then beyond that, I think everyone really needs to have someone to talk to, whether it's counselling, um, based on the level of trauma that they did or didn't have. Um, I underestimated the impact of it. Through most of my 20s and early 30s, I thought I was invincible. I was emotionally unavailable because I had, I had actually terminated the feeling of feeling anything until um, I had my own family later on in life and it all came back because I had to reacquaint with those feelings. So, yeah, I don't have, um, every case is a little bit different, but it, it's important you don't underestimate what we, how important it is to, to clear your head once you get out. 